Amen. You may be seated. I don't think that clock was there last time I was here, so that's a, that's a good thing for your sakes. Uh, it's 10.30, right? Am I reading that right? All right, it's 10.30. So let's turn together in our Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, 4, I'm sorry, 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Apostle Paul tells us in the midst of it, we'll come back to the context, but he simply says this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose uh, the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his com- commendation from God. We ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are found uh, in your word, that we would uh, know the truth of your word and that we would uh, find our foundation for our faith in it, and all to your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, amen. Uh, well, it's uh, October, so I guess that means every year it's quote-unquote Reformation Month. So uh, since I'll be here today and also next uh, Lord's Day, Lord willing, we're going to uh, spend some time asking the question, uh, why are we Protestants? Why are we Protestants? Now, uh, raising kids uh, in their early years, you find yourself as a parent teaching very negatively. When they're really early, uh, really young, it's a lot of negatives. Don't do this. Don't touch that. They get a little bit older. Don't believe in those things. But at a certain point, you realize that uh, you can't just be negative. You have to positively teach your kids uh, so that they can go off on their own, uh, and we pray and trust, do the right thing. So we just sent our first kid off to college, so uh, we're, we're praying that the Lord would, uh, would uh, bring all those things we taught him to remembrance, and we, we're uh, thankful that so far, so far, so good, right? So far, so good, <laughs> right? So uh, you can't just teach negatively. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there, don't hang out with him, don't hang out with her, don't believe this or that. You have to be positive. Uh, and so, you know, your kids get a little bit older, and then you're like, you know, Go mow the lawn, but let me show you how to mow the lawn first, and then uh, go out and mow the lawn. Uh, You have to forgive those who sin against you, and here's how you forgive, uh, because God and Jesus Christ has forgiven you first, and so now you have to share that forgiveness with others, and so here's how you do that, and you even sort of model that to your kids, and you tell them, you know, I'm sorry for sinning against you in this way, and I ask your forgiveness, and, you know, give me forgiveness, and so we we do that. when we hear the word Protestant, we probably think of something negative, I, I think. When you hear the word Protestant, what do you think about? What is a Protestant? Is it protest? See, that's what we all, we all think it's protest, you know? There's a lot of protests going on uh, in our society and in the world today. 
Uh, to be a Protestant is not to be a, not to protest. Literally, it meant to confess. Protestatio means to, pro, to profess, to confess the truth. So it has a positive, but we think of it as a negative. You know, we protest the Catholic Church. That's a part of it, but mostly it's a positive. So I want us to positively think about why we're Protestant, uh, why it is that uh, on the negative, we're not Roman Catholics anymore, but we're Reformed Catholics, we're Reformed Protestants. Uh, and so foundations, foundations are absolutely necessary for us. Uh, and here in SoCal, of course, we're always under constant threat of what? I'm used to asking questions in my sermon. I'm a little more Pentecostal than you're probably used to. So it's okay. If you, if you say the wrong answer, it's okay, brother. I'll forgive you. And, uh, you know, sister, I'll forgive you. It's, it's cool. So uh, we're under constant threat here in SoCal of what? But what, do, what do we call earthquakes? The big one, right? The big one's coming. Ever since I was a kid, Living just down the road in Redondo, I remember uh, like the Northridge earthquake. That's the big one. No, it's not the big one. The big one's like nine and a half to ten. You know, we're we're still waiting for that big one. So we're always living under constant threat of the big one, aren't we? And uh, friends of ours who live in Yuma, Arizona, you know, they're just they just can't wait to get that beachfront property, right? Yeah, the whole of California is going to slide off to the ocean to get their beachfront property. Everywhere else, there's floods and there are, there are hurricanes and and all kinds of other other natural disasters we call them or acts of God. Uh, that they remind us that our, our homes need a foundation to give us stability so that whatever comes against that foundation, your family can still have a place to stay. You can have a place to lay your head uh, and be protected at night. Uh, spiritually speaking, then, we need to have a foundation. Uh, what's the foundation that Jesus wants the church to be built upon? What's the foundation? The Lord himself, right? He is the chief cornerstone of, of, a, of a foundation, what's that foundation that he's the cornerstone of? The doctrine of the apostles and prophets, right? That's what the apostle tells us in, in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. The word, the word, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So what does it mean to be a Protestant? What does it mean to be a, a Christian in the Protestant uh, persuasion or uh, the Protestant tradition? Let me just briefly outline for you, uh, our, our first point is going to be a little bit of a, of a sort of negative, if you will, an expose. Uh, Rome's foundation, the Roman Catholic Church's foundation, is scripture and what? Tradition, right? Scripture and tradition. Those are the, the two, uh, we'll see, uh, distinct foundations of the Roman Catholic Church. So we're going to put that, in, in, put that up first, and that'll be kind of like the foil, that's the literary term for the thing that we're going to look at the opposite of. So that's, that's the negative, right? The Roman Catholic Church. Um, one of the ways the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, responded to the Protestant Reformation uh, was by calling together a church council. And so they gathered at a place called Trent, uh, and that gathering lasted for 18 years, 1545 to 63. They, didn't, they weren't there all the whole time, but they were off and on meeting uh, as a council, uh, as the church, the Roman Catholic Church's leadership. And against the Reformation doctrine that God has spoken in his word and that all traditions must be judged by the written scriptures, Rome said this. You probably know this. I mean, how many of us baptized Catholic, Roman Catholic? Come on now. Come on now. Only a, only a couple of us? My goodness, you know. My hand's up in the air because I was also baptized in the Roman Catholic Church uh, just, just uh, back down the freeway in Long Beach. So uh, here's what the Roman Catholic Church says about the Protestant 
movement that we profess to believe in and belong to today. Rome said this, that it, quote, receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence the Old and New Testaments and the traditions of the church. You hear that? Equal affection. Scripture, tradition, equal affection. We receive and venerate with equal affection of piety and reverence the scriptures and the tradition of the church. And the conclusion was that if anyone, this is their attack on Protestants, if anyone, quote, knowingly and deliberately uh, regards with contempt the traditions, let him be anathema. That's a big word, anathema, but you probably know what that means. What does anathema mean? It means condemned. It means condemned. Paul uses it in Galatians. Of those who rely upon the law, let them be anathema. Let them be anathema. Eternally accursed, separated from the church and grace and God. Uh, later on, there was a creed that was written up in the Catholic Church based on the Council of Trent, and it said this, I do at this present firmly, uh, freely profess and truly hold this true Catholic faith without which no one can be saved. Speaking of scripture and tradition. In 1965, at the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI decreed this, it is not from sacred scripture alone. Who do you think he's saying that against? Us, us today. It's not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty. And then even more recently, uh, Pope John Paul II in, the, in the, the New Catholic Catechism, my mom calls this like the half, the half Catholic catechism. It's not the real deal, like the old Baltimore catechism, you know, and learning the Latin mass when she was a kid. But here's what the, the most recent catechism of the Catholic Church says, uh, that scripture and tradition can only be authoritatively interpreted by the church's bishops who are in obedience to the Pope. So what's the foundation upon which the Roman Catholic Church professes to be built? Scripture plus tradition. Now, they'll tell you, your, your loved ones, your friends will say, well, it's really just one. It's one revelation of God. But practically, Rome's foundation is the Pope and those who surround him. Rome says that they alone can speak with authority to the people of God, what Scripture and tradition says. And so that's, the, that's why there was a Protestant Reformation. Equal affection, equal piety, equal reverence, the Roman Catholic Church said that we receive both the scripture and all the unwritten tradition of the church that have been passed down to us through the councils, the popes, et cetera, et cetera. Both, both. And so there are two foundations upon which uh, the Roman Catholic Church is built. Now, uh, there's a lot of things that we can say about that and ways to approach it, but let me just narrow it down to this. Um, let's look at our foundation and look at the examples. You have your Bible open there to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to look at chapters, uh, several verses throughout these chapters. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, and also chapter 4. Now, in the first couple of chapters, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians why he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. There was a big struggle in that congregation, in, in, the, uh, in, in the church in Corinth in the first century. What was the big struggle that was going on in Corinth? What was the big struggle going on? It's a very practical struggle. There were internal divisions on this side of the church and these pews, these chairs, and, and on that side, there were these divisions 
between people in the church. There were factions in the church. Some were following Jesus, they said. Some followed Cephas or Peter. Some followed Apollos. Some followed Paul. The church was fragmented and fractured. You probably heard the term celebrity pastor. You heard that phrase? So just sort of read that back into, if you will, it's anachronistic, but read it back into Corinthians. That's what was going on. They all had their favorite pastor, their favorite celebrity pastor. You know, Peter, Peter, the one that Jesus said, you know, upon this rock of your confession, I'm going to build my church. Paul, the one who came here and evangelized us. Apollos, this eloquent speaker. No, 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 no. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. The church was fragmented. It was fractured. It was an absolute mess. But it wasn't. It wasn't Cephas or Peter, Apollos, Paul, or Jesus that was the problem. The problem was the church, the people that turned the church this way. And because Paul was onto their agenda, he said that the remedy was to point away from himself and point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in chapter 1, verse 18, down through verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, it's this big chunk where basically he says, you know, we preach Christ. And we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ alone. You can see that there if you have your Bible. That's, that's his big desire. And that's why he says uh, that he desired uh, uh, to know nothing or decided to know nothing, chapter 2, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did Paul not know how to tie his sandals? Did Paul not know how to build a tent? Did Paul not know that he had to eat and drink water every day to survive? Of course he knew those things. He's not saying that that's all he knew was Jesus and crucified. He's saying that that's what he focused on. That's what he emphasized because they were so fragmented, he was going to focus it upon one thing, Jesus Christ. To preach Christ meant preaching the cross, he says, which is foolishness to the world, but it's, God, but it's God's very wisdom. It's weakness in the eyes of the world, but it's the power of God. Paul summarized this by saying he didn't come with lofty speech, look at chapter 2, verse 5, for example, or human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power, so that, here's the key, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So again, they, they were viewing these apostles, even Jesus, as these great prophets, these great preachers, these great apostles, but they were viewing them merely as men, bringing some nice wisdom, and this crowd over here likes this guy, and that crowd over there likes that guy. And that's why Paul says in chapter, six, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, and going on, uh, to the mature in Corinth, he was imparting wisdom that came from the Holy Spirit. But to the, to the, to the immature, uh, they, their, their ears were closed. Now, in chapter 3, Paul says the Corinthians were not mature. They were not a spirit, uh, spiritual people, uh, but they were infants in the flesh who had to drink milk, and they, they couldn't eat meat, like at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And so he asks them, verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? You see that in chapter 3, verse 5? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And how does he describe them? What's the first word of the, the next sentence? 
servants. Servants. Notice that. Keep that word before you. Circle that because it comes up again and again and again in this passage. Paul then said of the Corinthians' favorite pastors, one plants, look at chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, one plants, one waters, but who gives the growth? God gives the growth. Therefore, the planter and the waterer is nothing but what? A servant. A servant. Paul wasn't the main deal, right? Apollos wasn't the guy on the stage. They're just merely servants who are bringing the word. Whose word? God's word. God's word. Now, then he switches the metaphor from servant to a foundation and then a building that's built upon the foundation. Look at verse number 11 of chapter 3. There's one foundation. It's Jesus Christ. And any minister, verses 10 and 11 say, any minister who builds must build on that already existing foundation. There's Christ. And then any true servant of the word, any true minister of the word has to build on that foundation, not his own foundation. That's the test, you see. That's the test whether you're called the pope or whether you're called pastor. That's the test. Are you building upon that one foundation that's already been laid? Now, recently, there was a celebrity pastor. We, I may ask you if you've heard that phrase before. That's, it gets kind of thrown around on social media. You know, this guy's a celebrity pastor and so forth. Um, but there was recently a celebrity pastor, the very large following. Um, but yet many people pointed out this, this, this celebrity pastor, uh, very popular, you know, Huge, huge uh, audience, uh, very, you know, New York Times best-selling books, tens of thousands of people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People point out he's a narcissist. He's a manipulator. And this particular celebrity pastor was very fond of the tag phrase, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But if you looked from the outside in, it was obviously all about him, the celebrity pastor. I won't tell you his name, but it was all about him, the celebrity pastor. And it came out later, of course, after, after he had many, many followers. I mean, we're talking in the tens of thousands, influence uh, way beyond any normal reform pastor, by the way. Uh, <laughs> huge influence, right? Huge influence. We have to always guard our hearts from, from this stuff, you know, this, this, this worldly influence and uh, wanting, wanting this stuff. Um, it came out that he had several affairs, and his whole empire came crashing down upon him. Now, it's, it shouldn't be surprising. Uh, when, when, when movie stars and singers, actors, actresses, when they, you know, they, they reach these heights of influence and prestige, and then they're, they're, there's, always like, there's always some crash you know, down. They, you know, their whole thing fell apart, you know, whatever it was. They're not as popular as they used to be and so forth. Uh, it, it, it sadly happens also with so-called celebrity pastors. Uh, you know, there's always the movie star that, uh, you know, has, is, is like the top dog, the highest paid, you know, movie star in Hollywood and then, and then has whatever fall they have. And then all of a sudden, like, they, you know, they get, their, they get their redemption moment, right? Like Robert Downey Jr., you know. Nobody remembers that he was like a druggie. All they remember is that he's Iron Man, you know. This is Iron Man, you know. Billions and billions of dollars in the movies. So they, they look at the redemption story, right, and they see that. And a lot of times that, that gets translated to from our cultural kind of like second chance uh, 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 thing that we do. And that happens even with 
celebrity pastors. And so just a while back, I saw that there was a, there was a new website for this particular celebrity pastor. And there are several uh, uh, articles written on this website and commendations and people were saying uh, about him, uh, describing his past, but doing it like in the passive voice. They were describing it as if, you know, he didn't implode his own empire. It was the empire imploded upon him. Like it all came crashing down upon him as if he had no say in it, Right? There's no taking responsibility, no taking ownership. Uh, it was no fault of his own, right? No fault of his own. Another little sort of blurb said, you know, this, this, this guy, uh, he deserves grace. And then another person said, the world needs fill in the blank. The world needs fill in the blank. The world didn't even need the apostle Paul. That's what Paul is saying here. We're servants. One man plants the seed in the ground. Another person comes by and waters the seed. But it's God who gives all the increase and the growth. The world doesn't need us. The world doesn't need us, brothers and sisters. Do you realize that? The world doesn't need you. It doesn't need me. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't need any of us. Do you realize that? The world needs Jesus Christ, amen? Not us. Now, we pray and trust the Lord would use us to bring Christ to them, but he really doesn't need us. He uses us, but he doesn't need us. Back to Corinthians. In the end, he's saying here, verses 20, uh, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, uh, in the end, what a minister has built will be exposed and judged. And, th- and that verse, those verses there, 12 through 15, where he talking about uh, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, everybody's work's going to be manifest on, on that final day, revealed by fire and so forth. That verse usually gets ripped out of context. It's not talking about your individual salvation. That's usually how it's ripped out of context. This is like the Roman Catholic purgatory verse, isn't it? It's a purgatory verse. No, this is a a text about the rewards that the servants of the word get and were they faithful to build upon that foundation. God will judge Rome's and the Reformation's buildings. That's the point. Are we built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? And there's a warning in there, verse 17. If one destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. It's a really serious, serious warning there. If we destroy the temple that God has built upon the foundation of Christ, God will judge him, meaning the servant, the minister, the one who is bringing the word. That brings us to chapter 4 then, just kind of flowing through here, chapter 4. And Paul saying pastors are merely servants. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of of God. Notice verse 6. If I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, uh, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Notice that phrase, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What's he saying there? That we might learn, that the Corinthians and you and I might learn not to go beyond 
what's written. What's he saying there? It's not about personalities. It's not about Paul's opinions and Cephas's opinions and Apollos's opinions. No. It's not about the opinions, the pontifications, the traditions of men. It's about those who serve Christ by revealing him in his words. Don't go beyond what is written, he says. Why? So that nobody's puffed up in favor of one against another. It's not about, you know, well, this tribe over here has this particular tradition, but they have theirs. And we pick our little traditions. We pick our favorite little things and our our little preferences. It's not about your preference. It's about the word, he says. The foundation of Jesus Christ. Don't go beyond what's written by God in his word. And Paul and Apollos and Cephas were just ministers of that word. Servants to bring the word to you. That's it. That's it. We're servants of the word, he says. Paul saying that, and we apply that to ministers. We are servants of the word. The word that Paul uses of a servant, uh, if you know anything about like ancient, uh, ancient ships and how ships were moved through the Mediterranean, of course they had sails, but they, they had oars, they had to row. And there would be various levels uh, of rowers in a ship, the very bottom level, that would be like the, the lowest of the low, servants, even slaves, there would be various levels of those who oar uh, and row. And so he's, when he uses that word of a servant of the word, it's the lowest level of rower on an ancient Roman ship. That's what, a, that's, what a, that's what an apostle is. That's what a minister of the gospel is, the lowest, the lowest of the low. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to throw tomatoes at me today, okay? That doesn't mean you've got to kick me out of here afterwards, right? But the lowest level of rower on a ship, right? You're just a servant. You're not the ship. You're not the captain of the ship. You're just a rower who's leading the church to where it needs to go. Being built on that foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're stewards also, he said. So we are servants, that lowest level of rower on a ship. But also he says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God, that's the gospel, and we're just stewards. We're just holding on to it. We're caretakers, he says. And the word that he uses there for steward is, a, is usually used in, in ancient Greek of a, of a household servant who was the caretaker of a house while the master was away. So a caretaker. That's all, that's all a minister is. A servant who rose. A steward who takes care of the house while the master is away. A servant and steward of what is written. Not really, what, not, not really what Paul wrote, but what had been written by all the Old Testament prophets, all the New Testament apostles. Don't think more highly of mere men that you might idolize. Don't think more highly of those men than you do of the Scripture, is what Paul is saying. What Paul says here is consistent with the evidence of all the Scriptures, in fact. How are sinners saved? What does Paul say in Romans chapter number 10? Verse 17, faith comes by hearing what? The word, right? The word of Christ, right? The word of Christ. Peter says this. He says, you, to Jesus, you have the words of everlasting life. The meaning, the words that bring everlasting life. John 6, verse 68. How is the soul of a believer satisfied according to Scripture? 
Moses said these words, and Jesus quoted them in his temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How is a believer to be sanctified? Didn't Jesus once pray this to his heavenly Father? Sanctify them by your word? Your word is truth, John 17. One ancient preacher, his name was John Chrysostom, he said that ignorance of Scripture was the cause of all evils, including negligent lives. To not have the light of the word in your life means to walk in the worst of darkness, he said. That's why Jesus said the wise builder is the one that builds upon the solid rock of his words, not the shifting sands of men's opinions and traditions. So how, how do we build upon that foundation? So there's the Roman Catholic Church has two foundations, Scripture and tradition, and really the tradition takes precedence over Scripture because the tradition is the living voice of the Pope and, and his curia, curia and uh, the teaching of the church, the catechisms and the traditions and whatnot. That takes precedence over Scripture. Paul says, don't go beyond what's written. There's this foundation of Christ and his word. How do we build upon that, to use that language of the Apostle Paul? Paul, again, his metaphor of a true minister uh, and a true ministry is built upon that one foundation of Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to us in his word. And beyond what is written, we must not, we cannot, and we will not go. That's what Paul's saying to us. Because the word of God says that itself, it's a thing that brings us to salvation. It saves us, it satisfies us as the saved, and it sanctifies us we have to then continue on in this faith and build upon this foundation. Well, how? How do you do that? How does the grace you are see here in Torrance build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ? Right? You're not, you're not adding, a, you're not, this is not like adding an addition to the foundation, right? We're not, you're not adding like a little A, what is it, an ADU, the, ex, uh, the accessory dwelling unit. You're not adding anything here, Okay. You're not adding anything. We're just building upon that one foundation that's already been built. It's already been laid, and we're just building upon it. First, here's how you, as a church, go out, build upon this foundation of Christ and his word. First of all, you have to crave the word. I'm a preacher, so I'm going to give you three C's here, okay? Three C's, right? You've got to crave the word, first of all. Crave the word. Again, that uh, preacher I mentioned, John Chrysostom, they, they named him Chrysostom. Uh, it meant the golden-tongued. He was such a great orator uh, and a great speaker. But he said this. He, and remember, this is like the greatest preacher of the ancient church. He preached in Constantinople. He was the bishop of the church there. Uh, he preached to thousands. His sermons were sent across the world. I still read his sermons. Chrysostom said this, this great orator. He said, people came to church to hear him, quote, thinking that when they entered the church, that they enter into the preacher's presence. They think that they hear from us, but they do not lay to heart. They do not consider that they are entering the presence of God." That it is he who addresses them. Is that your attitude when you come to this place? 
Are you coming here to crave the word? It doesn't matter who stands in front of you, okay? I was, I was told at my ordination, July of 2000, if you can imagine that. My kids can't even imagine that. July of 2000. I was told at my ordination that I am a Dixie cup. You know what a Dixie cup is? Do you guys have like a, like a sparkless water here? Or, or we have coffee afterwards, don't we? You probably have like a styrofoam cup, but a Dixie cup, like just a paper cup. Uh, the preacher, uh, Dr., Dr. Godfrey, said, you're a Dixie cup, Danny. You're a Dixie cup. And I was like, what does that even mean? You know, what are you talking about, a Dixie cup? He's like, the church, the Lord, but through the church, uses up the Dixie cup, right? We use, we, and we, what do we do? You wad it up and you throw it in the trash. You're a Dixie cup. You're, 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 you're not indispensable. You're a dispensable product, as it were. It doesn't matter who comes into this pulpit. It doesn't matter. It's the word, right? We come to crave the word. And so we don't want to come here craving, you know, even the, our beloved Heidelberg Catechism, just a mere catechism for catechism's sake, or to come here to recover some tradition, uh, or to hear what my favorite pastor's got to say, we come to crave the word. So that's the first thing, right? Be a people of the word who love it and desire it and crave it. Secondly, catechize with the word. Catechize with the word. We have, a, we have these amazing Reformational era catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, as we know. Uh, but they're amazing, not because they are themselves so amazing, but as you probably noticed, like in our Heidelberg Catechism, every single question and answer, you, you, even the first one, uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, et cetera, et cetera. You see all the little footnotes, don't you? And you see all those scripture passages. The catechism is meant to point you back to what? The Word. The Word. And we, with our, in our family, of course, we've beaten these things into our kids' head over the many years, and they've memorized uh, a lot of these questions. And Sadie and I are driving to school every, every day this, uh, the past few, it's been, a, been too long probably. Uh, question 116. We're memorizing that one. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? And sometimes the answers get really long and they get kind of like repetitive and she starts to bleed into like question 21 and it all kind of morphs into her head. But there's these beautiful questions and are, they're all meant to point us to Scripture, to point us back to the Word with every question and answer. That's the true test of these human writings. Do they point us to Scripture? We have to, as we learn... Whatever it is that we are learning, theologically speaking, it, has to, it needs to get us into Scripture so that we can get those Scriptures into us. Didn't we sing about the, meditating upon the law and the law being in our hearts and so forth? Right? We, gotta, we, we dive into the Word to get the Word into us. That, that's why we do it. Again, uh, John Chrysostom said this, Let us make children from the earliest age apply themselves to the reading of the Scriptures. Study not to make him an orator, but train him up to be a Christian philosopher. All the rhetoric in the world will be of no advantage. These gain a man the kingdom. Wet not his tongue, but cleanse his soul. Let us get into the word. And so let us crave the word and let us catechize with the word, meaning to teach with the word. And then finally, converse around and about the word. Converse around 
and about the Word. Uh, let's not come craving the Word of the Lord, and then we instruct or catechize ourselves and those of us with children, our children, with the Word, and then we leave this place. I'm not looking at anybody in particular here this morning. We're going to leave this place, and what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? Is Shohei Otani coming back to the angels or not? Right? That's really what matters. He better come back. I mean, my kids' lives are, are, are resting upon that decision. We need Shohei back in Anaheim, right? I can't get an amen about that. Come on now. You're a bunch of Dodger fans here. Oh, you Dodger fans, you know. Come on now. I'm a lifelong angel fan. My grandpa always told me, you know, Danny, you know, that's the JV team, you know. Come to the Dodgers. That's the JV team over there. <laughs> but what, what do we talk about, right? We, we hear the word. We come, you know, oh, man, what a great sermon. What, what, a, great, what a great teaching. These passages and so forth. This, this, this amazing stuff. But then we go talk about whatever else it is. Again, Chrysostom said this. He has this great section of homilies on this stuff. And he says, uh, is it not strange that those who sit in the marketplace, so just imagine yourself, wherever it is you might be at work or outside of church or, you know, wherever, at school, wherever you might be this week. Isn't it not strange that those who sit in the marketplace tell the names and the races and the cities and the talents of charioteers and dancers even accurately state the good and the bad qualities of horses, while those who assemble in the church understand nothing of what's taking place here and are even ignorant of the number of the sacred books. I mean, we can name off, you know, our favorite, uh, our favorite team, our favorite ball player. We can name off our favorite politician, our favorite this or that, whatever it might be. Nothing's changed from those ancient days. Nothing's changed. We're we're the same people. We, we, love, we love our entertainments, and we all have our favorite. But take this exhortation and challenge the heart. Talk about the word today. Discuss the word, not just today, but every day of your life. And so, why are we Protestants? Why are we Protestants? Because our foundation is the word of God. The God who's spoken. Not the words of mere men. We, pon we pontificate about the word, but... Our foundation is the word that God, that God has spoken. Even the greatest men in the history of the church are just that. They're mere men. Their, their words cannot be the infallible foundation that's needed when spiritual storm attacks the church. Only God can provide this foundation, and he's done so in his revealed word. And so we are founded on scripture. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would write your words upon our hearts. Help us to go back today and this week and even go back through this, uh, these first four chapters and meditate upon what they say about the truth, about the foundation, about your words. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would now uh, receive us at your table to assure us of your amazing grace, the God who has uh, made us, the God who has redeemed us and liberated us from our sins, the God who establishes us in the truth of your most holy word. And we ask now that you would hear us and receive us and help us. And all of God's people say, amen.